Table 19, your piece is ready. I'm not the manager of a very successful rock band. I am just a schnook. Hi once again, friends. This is Sean, and I'm a schnook. Welcome to Chapter 38 of Autobiography of a Schnook. If you are listening to this right now, it means it is right smack dab in most of the December holidays. So if you're among the people who celebrate any number of holidays that's sprouting up right now that somebody put together to divert attention away from the pagan festival of Saturnalia, or if you are a pagan and celebrate Saturnalia, I wish you a wonderful whatever you celebrate if you do celebrate anything, whether it be Christmas, Saturnalia, Kwanzaa, uh, it's too late for Hanukkah. And my dog is doing something she hardly ever does right now. She's playing with a squeaky toy, so that's the noise you might be hearing in the background. But yeah, um, I'm really excited. I'm recording this literally minutes after I clocked out of work for the last time in 2021. It is December 17th as I talk to you, and I am not going back to work until January 4th. My wife Lisa has a birthday in a few days, and we're taking a trip to celebrate assuming nothing stupid happens at least. <laughs> well, we're leaving tomorrow, so nothing stupid should happen, hopefully. Knock on wood. I hope all of you are well. So glad I finally got the November episode out. And uh, I have a feeling that if anybody I get involved with uh, cycling discussions on Twitter decided to listen to that episode, I probably pissed a lot of people off. But quite frankly, I honestly don't care because I said what I needed to say. One of the reasons I do this podcast is basically self-therapy, just to keep myself kind of as sane as possible, uh, or at least as uninsane as possible, as it were. And I really enjoy doing it. I really enjoy talking to all of you, all three of you. So <laughs> thank you for listening. I sincerely appreciate it. But I'm not going to ramble on for too long, for one thing, because i got a lot of things to do before this trip. And another thing, I really want to get away from this recording and spin some Christmas vinyl. Picked up the uh, ever-famous Bing Crosby album, the one where he's uh, on the front cover, just his head with a Santa hat. Already listened to it. Uh, wasn't exactly what I was expecting, but I'm, I'm still glad to have it. And I'm trying to think, what else did I pick? Oh, I should probably spin the Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas soundtrack. I love it so much. And um, anyway, I'm just going to leave it at that and get right on to the main body of today's chapter, today's episode. And there's my dog playing with her toy again. One thing that Christmas always reminds me of is Christmases in which video games were a huge part of it. So I kind of want to explain something to you as to why it seems that two of my biggest interests, music and video games, tend to harken back to, well, let's just say not current times. So, if you want to hear me babble about that, well, I recommend you keep on listening. I don't know if you want to say that I'm stuck in the past or living in the present. Really, I try to keep up with the times. After all, I watch modern TV shows and keep up with technology. Although, for reasons I won't get into right now, I refuse to use TikTok. If you were to judge me by most of the music I talk about on this podcast, you'd probably think I'm living in the past. 
Another one of my loves is video games. And if you were to judge me based on my video game habits, you'd probably think I'm living in the past. The thing is, it's not that I'm trying to be nostalgic or anything. Old video games are the ones I like. I just can't get into modern video gaming. I've tried. It just bores me. When I tell people I'm into old video games, almost invariably, they say, Oh, like the old PlayStation? <laughs> Farther. One of my coworkers told me that his parents had a Super Nintendo before he was born. <laughs> oh boy, parents had a Super Nintendo. <laughs> Can I go back even further, kid? The earliest video game I remember playing was my brother's Kmart Pong console. He had it connected to an old black and white TV. I remember playing that thing only a few times. My parents made him get rid of that console, though, so it wasn't around for long. One of my earliest and most profound memories of video games is a holiday gathering at my Uncle Phil's house. Sometime after dinner, we were all downstairs, and someone, I don't remember who, probably my cousin Jason, was playing a game called Space Invaders on the TV. I was fascinated. The colors, the sounds, that little wood grain box with the six metal switches on it. Whoa, so cool. The next time we were there, I asked about playing some Space Invaders. So after dinner, a bunch of us retired to the basement and fired up the Atari video computer system, which would later be rebranded and better known as the Atari 2600. Space Invaders it was. After a few rounds, my cousin Jason popped the Space Invaders cartridge out and plugged in another game called Asteroids. He played a few games of it, and then I tried it. I couldn't figure the thing out, though. What was I supposed to do with the joystick? Twist it or something? I didn't know that you move left and right to rotate. <laughs> Next was Missile Command, which really didn't do much for me, honestly. But I did observe that Jason, after every time he played a game of Missile Command, he would frantically turn the console off or some other way interrupt the game in progress when the game was about to end. I asked him why he kept doing that. He said, I don't want to see the screen at the end of the game. In retrospect, I could understand why he wouldn't want to see the final screen of the arcade version, which ends in a big explosion and the words THE END in big letters, bringing forth Cold War nuclear war apprehension. But on the Atari 2600 version, there's just the sound of an explosion and some color cycling. Oh well. After a while, my uncle took over, pulled the joystick out of the console, put another cartridge in, and then plugged something else into where the joystick once was. He said, for this game you have to use these. The game was Super Breakout, and the these was a pair of rotary controllers that Atari fans know better as paddle controllers. Again, I was fascinated. I didn't play Super Breakout at all that night. My gaming had come to an end, actually, before Uncle Phil demonstrated Super Breakout for us. So from that point, going to Uncle Phil and Aunt Carol's house to me meant... Atari. Going to their house was always an exciting thing to look forward to. I mean, don't get me wrong, I was glad to see my aunt, uncle, and cousins, but... Come on, I was like seven years old, first things first. If I'm not mistaken... The first time I saw an arcade video game was when the local Kroger grocery store put two arcade cabinets by the exit. Shortly after that, and I know I mentioned this in a prior chapter, but one day on the way home from our monthly trip to Lincoln Mall, my brother Scott mentioned that Le Mans Speedway, the mostly pinball arcade at the mall, had just gotten Pac-Man. I had never heard of the game before then, and that was all he said about the game, so I still had no idea what the game was like. But shortly after that, for whatever reason, my parents decided that for the weekend of Lincoln's birthday, we'd spend the weekend at the nearby Holiday Inn. 
Each night we were there, we spent a lot of time in the game room, which had a pool table, a pinball machine or two, and five or six arcade video games. They had Space Invaders, and that was when I learned that Space Invaders was originally a quote-unquote big video game, as I called those arcade cabinets back then. But uh, to be honest, to this day, of all versions of Space Invaders that have come out over the years, my favorite is still, hands down, the Atari 2600 version. Also that weekend at the Holiday Inn was the first time I ever saw Donkey Kong, and of course I wondered where the donkeys were. But what really solidified my fascination with video games? Pac-Man. I was intrigued by the graphics and the sounds. I tried Pac-Man two or three times after watching the Attract Mode demo, and uh, I sucked. I would head straight for the monsters and not understand why I kept losing a life, while in the Attract screen Pac-Man was happily munching on those critters harmlessly. Nonetheless, though, despite not understanding the game, I loved Pac-Man, and, uh, well, still do to this day, 40 years later. The next time I was at Kroger, I walked over to the two video games by the exit while my parents were in the checkout lane. One of the machines was a two-in-one cabinet containing a game called Deep Scan, which was a submarine torpedo game, sometimes known as Depth Charge, and the other game was Head-On 2 which I thought looked just like Dodgem on the Atari 2600, which, uh, by the way, it essentially was. The other cabinet was significantly smaller, and it was a game called Crazy Kong. I wondered if it had anything to do with that Donkey Kong game that I saw at the Holiday Inn. Literally decades later, I found out that Crazy Kong was a version of Donkey Kong that was actually running on hardware from the Crazy Climber arcade video game and was made specifically for overseas distribution. How Kroger happened to have it in the podunk town I lived is beyond me, although from doing Pie Factory podcast, I learned that there were a lot of shady practices with arcade games back in the early 80s. And uh, speaking of shadiness in uh, the arcade world, I found myself wishing that Kroger had Pac-Man. Well, one day my brother came home with the good news that Kroger had just gotten a Pac-Man machine, but the marquee sign was actually handmade, not an original. But sure enough, yeah, they had Pac-Man. Again, years later and with more knowledge about the video game industry, my recollection is that it was absolutely not an official Pac-Man cabinet. It was a counterfeit. It didn't have any of the artwork, it had a hand-drawn marquee, and a completely different control panel from what you'd find on an actual Bally Midway Pac-Man cab. Over the next couple of years, different games would be rotated in and out of Kroger. Ms. Pac-Man, Super Pac-Man, Pac-Man Plus, Donkey Kong Jr., Burger Time, Popeye, among others. Many is the time I would beg my parents for a quarter. Few is the time I would actually get one. Trips to Lincoln Mall, Kroger, and of course Uncle Phil's house would just fuel my love of video games, especially Pac-Man. I remember when there was a new home video game that had the word Munchkin in the title, and from the commercials I saw, it looked just like Pac-Man. I said out loud that I hoped Uncle Phil would be getting it, but my brother said, no, actually, that game's for the Odyssey 2. The game, of course, was the infamous KC Munchkin, and the Odyssey 2 was Magnavox's current video game console. Atari actually had the rights to release Pac-Man on a home video game cartridge, even though they hadn't done so yet. But because Atari had the license to produce a Pac-Man cartridge, they sued Magnavox over KC Munchkin. It actually looked like things were going in Magnavox's favor because Magnavox's attorneys argued that KC Munchkin had a lot of features that made it a different game from Pac-Man. But what actually clinched it for Atari in the end was when store employees would tell people that the game was just like Pac-Man. 
Uh, That's a very, very, very super short version of the story, but it's not the point I'm trying to make here. Right now, my point is that I was hoping for a home version of Pac-Man to surface, so I wouldn't have to wait for a trip to Lincoln Mall so I could play it at Aladdin's Castle, which is what Le Mans Speedway was renamed when it became primarily a video game arcade. Soon it was announced that Pac-Man was about to be released for the Atari 2600. I asked my cousins if they had it yet. My aunt overheard me and said, no, but we ordered it. Ooh, cool, someone I knew was getting it. And I found out that my next-door neighbor to the west had it. Now, I usually didn't get along with that neighbor kid, but somehow I finagled my way into their home once. I think it was his sister's high school graduation party, and uh, she and Scott were friends. So, I went and I managed to get involved in some Atari gameplay with a bunch of other kids. I remember playing an Activision game called Freeway, which I kind of hated. It looked like a Frogger ripoff. Only in recent years did I find out that it was not a ripoff of Frogger, and in fact both Frogger and Freeway came out a bit too close to each other for Activision to have copied the famous arcade classic. But instead, Freeway was actually Activision's interpretation of a much older arcade video game called Space Race. But I asked about Pac-Man, so my neighbor popped it into the Atari console, handed me the joystick, and said, here, give it a shot. I was... stunned at how different it was from the arcade version. The colors were weird, and the sounds were even weirder, but I tried to not let it bother me. After all, I knew that the Atari 2600 had significant system limitations that would not allow it to fully reproduce the arcade version. I played it for a few minutes and uh, moved on. Now this next story, I know dang well I told it before, so I'll try to keep it brief for this retelling. But Coleco had released a small handful of tabletop versions of arcade video games, including my beloved Pac-Man. It sure looked like a miniature version of the arcade cabinet. I didn't actually see any of the gameplay from it, but my eight-year-old mind was convinced somehow that it was basically the actual arcade game, but in a really small form factor. That's all I wanted for Christmas that year. So I was excited to wake up on Christmas morning to see if, um, Santa... <clears throat> brought me the Coleco Pac-Man. In my family, the habit was always that we would exchange gifts at night on Christmas Eve, and then presents from Santa would happen on Christmas morning. Despite that I felt too old for Santa, they still made me do the Santa thing. Well, after opening up a few presents that were not the Coleco Pac-Man, there were two big boxes left. One was addressed to my dad, and the other was addressed to Scott and me. The one for my dad was a garage door opener, Yep, it was 1982, and to open our garage, we actually still had to step out of the car and pull the door up. The box for my brother and me ended up being an Atari video game system. It was the newer model with only four metal switches. The difficulty switches were eventually moved to the back of the console as small black plastic switches. And, um, Santa also got us the Pac-Man cartridge, which was stuffed inside the box. Uh, This was shortly before Atari was shipping the 2600 with Pac-Man. At this point, the Pac-In game was still combat. My brother and I were both shocked. We both yelled in unison upon unwrapping the present, Atari! Of course, after dinner while the adults were upstairs talking, playing cards, and everything else you do at Christmas, my cousins and I snuck downstairs and played Pac-Man for hours on end probably throwing in a few games of combat as well. The next day, Scott and I pooled the cash that we got for recent birthdays and Christmas and went to Kay's Merchandise Mart in Bradley, Illinois. They had a sale on video game cartridges. 
we wanted a game that would require the use of the paddle controllers. I mean, we had a pair of paddle controllers that we weren't using because Pac-Man and Combat didn't use them. The only game they had available at the time was Street Racer, so we got that. Kay's also had Outlaw on sale, so I suggested we buy that because I remember playing it before on a few occasions and I liked it. For the third game, Scott wanted Missile Command, but I wanted Defender. Because Missile Command was cheaper, though, that won out. Ah, well, that's okay. I was okay with getting Missile Command. Uh, Plus, I finally got to see the end of the game without my cousin there to switch it off. I spent hours upon hours during that winter break playing those five Atari games. When it was lunchtime, I ate as fast as I could so I could resume my Atari playing, much to my dad's annoyance, especially when I gagged on a cookie because I ate it so fast. Speaking of my dad, he explained to me why he and my uh, Santa got the Atari instead of the Coleco Pac-Man. He said they felt that the Atari system would be a much better investment. Well, let's see. The one Christmas present I wanted the following year was the newly released Atari 2600 version of the arcade game Cubert. I still played the games in the ensuing years, getting Atari games for Christmas presents as late as 1987, when all I wanted was the Atari 2600 version of Junior Pac-Man. Sometime in the mid-80s, we were at my Uncle Nick's house, I think for Easter. There were two things I was looking forward to that Easter. The pinball machine in his basement, and the Vectrex system my cousins Todd and Nicolette had. And of course, seeing my relatives. I mean, I was very looking forward to that, too. For those of you who might not know, in the mid-80s, a company called General Consumer Electronics, or GCE, released a video game console that had its own built-in monitor. It was so-called Vectrex because the monitor was a special kind of display that would show vector graphics, meaning, in a nutshell, that all the graphics were done by calculating Cartesian coordinates or vectors. If you're looking at an old video game and all the graphics are outlines and not solid, chances are it's because of vector graphics. Atari games such as Asteroids, Battlezone, Space Duel, and Star Wars were all vector graphics games. I futzed around with my cousin's Vectrex console for a while. It was different. The graphics looked really cool, but they were all black and white and just lines. There were no filled-in colors or shades or anything. If you wanted color, you had to put a game-specific overlay on the monitor to get the proper color scheme. And whereas the Atari 2600 controllers were right-handed and had a single fire button, the Vectrex controllers were left-handed and had four buttons. But the games were cool enough. There were Scramble, Solar Quest, Berserk, and Nighthawk, all arcade conversions. I was particularly drawn to a game called Clean Sweep, which, of course, was a Pac-Man clone, and it takes place in a bank vault. And uh, my cousins had these games completely intact. Boxes, inner molds, manuals, overlays, overlay sleeves, everything. I also found out accidentally that if you turn the console on without a cartridge inserted, there was a built-in game, an Asteroids clone called Mindstorm. My cousin Todd told me, You can take this home with you if you want and keep it. We're bored with it. I was stunned. This is a really cool system. How could you be bored with it? Needless to say, I accepted his offer. That sucker was coming home with me, and I was about to be the coolest kid in school. I thought to myself, everybody has an Atari or an Intellivision, but how many kids have two video game systems? Well, let me tell you, it turned out that having an additional video game console did not make me any cooler at all. Or, more accurately, it did not make me any less uncool. But still, I really liked that Vectrex. But where we lived, 
there weren't any stores that carried Vectrex cartridges, unfortunately, so I was pretty much stuck with those five games, a six if you count Mindstorm. That is, until I heard buzz that a place in Kankakee called Carriage Lane Mall, uh, not a real mall but a big warehouse full of different vendors with temporary walls, uh, Carriage Lane Mall had a crap ton of copies of the Vectrex Star Trek game for something like six bucks a pop. So I nagged my dad into taking me there, and sure enough, there were piles upon piles of Star Trek games all for cheap. I was never a Star Trek fan, but I didn't care. It was a new game for my Vectrex, and I ended up liking the game, by the way. Meanwhile, let's uh, skip ahead to May 1988. I got a Commodore 64C as an 8th grade graduation present. Uh, that's right, we had graduations for that where I was. I only found out recently that that's not a common thing. In terms of game playing, it was a significant step up from the Atari, plus it was a computer so I could do more with it. Still, I did break out the Atari 2600 periodically. After all, I had to get my fix of video pinball. There were plenty of great games for the Commodore, too, though. Beachhead, Beachhead 2, Crossroads, Crossroads 2, Roadrunner, Paperboy, and the list goes on. The games on that computer were major graphic and aural improvements over the Atari 2600, but they still retained the general feel and spirit of those games I'd been playing for years at this point. Around that same time, there was a new video game console that was getting popular, the Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES. I had futzed around with an NES on display at Kmart, but it didn't impress me in the slightest. In fact, the games I tried, they just bored me. My thought was that the games and capabilities were no better than those on the Commodore 64, and because I have a Commodore 64, I could theoretically learn how to program and make my own games. The uh, truth is, to this day, I still have no idea how to uh, program a game. A few years later, game systems became more advanced. There was the TurboGrafx-16 and the Sega Genesis, known outside of North America as the PC Engine and Sega Mega Drive, respectively. Scott actually ended up getting a Sega Genesis and a handful of games, uh, mainly sports games. I dug Sonic the Hedgehog. I found it to be a massive improvement over Super Mario Brothers on the NES. NHL hockey was a blast. I loved NFL sports talk football and sports talk baseball, mainly because the play-by-play -play guy would often fall behind the gameplay, especially in sports talk baseball. But because of that, I wasn't impressed, except for a game called Desert Strike a game very obviously based on the Persian Gulf War. I mean, don't get me wrong, the graphics were great and the sound was fantastic, but the games just bored me. It was around this time when I met my friend and Pie Factory podcast co-host Jim. In fact, I remember the exact date, July 25th, 1992. We met at a BBS gathering, a gathering that was on my calendar for a long time, which is why I still remember the date nearly 30 years later. And by a weird coincidence, I found out that Jim and I lived literally just a few doors down from each other, so after that, we'd hang out a lot. As I was, Jim was a video game buff, well, still is, especially for the classics. He was much more experienced with the Sega Genesis, and to be quite honest, every other video game console, than I was. He introduced me to the Atari 7800. I remember when the 7800 was being advertised. It was Atari's third video game console. I think it was 1982 when Atari released the 5200 Super System with its near-arcade quality graphics and sound, designed to compete against the Mattel and Television, and not, as many believe, the ColecoVision. While the console has many fans, it didn't really take off, partly because the controllers sucked, 
and partly because it didn't have backwards compatibility with Atari 2600 games. The 7800 Pro system was Atari's next attempt at a video game console, giving it kind of a soft release in 1984, and then a full market release in 1986. One of its selling points was that it was back compatible with 2600 games, but I never had one or even saw one, and the console didn't really grab my attention. That is, until Jim fired up his 7800 and showed me a few games. The Atari 7800 version of Asteroids looked really cool with its very detailed asteroid graphics rotating in three dimensions. Robotron 2084 was a wonderful arcade conversion. And then there was Food Fight, the 7800's home conversion of the arcade game with the same name. Food Fight was just nothing short of stunning on the 7800. Of course, the problem was that when your console goes to market in 1986, and most of the games you release are conversions from as far back as 1979, you're not going to move a lot of units. One day when I was over at Jim's place, I mentioned how I could acknowledge how current games all look fantastic and have really good stereo sound and everything, but I just couldn't get into them. They couldn't hold my interest. Yet these primitive games from the early 80s, both in the arcade and on old home video game consoles, could keep me glued to the TV all day still, and I would always go back to them, even as late as then, 1992. Jim offered what should have been, to me, the obvious answer. Sure, the new games look and sound great, but those older ones had a lot more playability. Aside from sports games, the usual concept of a video game in 1992 was that you would play the game, beat a level, beat some more levels, then fight the boss character, beat the boss character, and then repeat over and over and over until you end up fighting what I guess you could call the CEO character, the boss of all the other bosses. Once you beat that character, the game is over, and at that point, why bother playing it again? A vast majority of older video games that we loved did not come to such a completion. You would play the game until your character ran out of lives, and that was it. Game over. You were challenged to play the game over and over to see if you could beat your score. And that was exactly it. Sonic the Hedgehog, for example, was a fun game. But the truth is, once you knew how to beat Dr. Robotnik, what would be your impetus to play it again? Other than maybe to see if you could do it again, but faster. Meh. Scott told me about his then-girlfriend, uh, future first wife. Uh, her brothers bought the Terminator 2 game for the Genesis, and within two hours they'd already beaten the game, and they never touched it after that. And you know what? I still play these old games. Every few years I try my hands at a few contemporary video games, but... They just don't hold my interest. One thing I love about the oldies is that they're very, as we in the community say, pick up and play. That is, for the most part, you could grab, say, a random Atari 2600 cartridge of a game you've never played before, pop it into the console, and within minutes you'd know how to play it. You would not need to read a manual. You had just two components on the controller, some kind of maneuvering mechanism, be it a joystick or a rotary, and one button. Modern games, though? tend to be much more complicated. More often than not, you have to read a manual to figure things out, or at least go through some kind of a long tutorial. I have a PlayStation and Xbox-compatible controller, and as I look at it right now, I find that it has um, two joysticks, one four-button directional pad or D-pad, and uh, no fewer than 12 additional buttons. How in the hell are you supposed to keep all that straight? And to play a modern game, you... 
more often than not, have to invest some significant time. You're likely not going to start the game and be done with it in, say, 10 or 15 minutes. When I play those old games, it's not because I want to relive my childhood. God knows I don't. I mean, I didn't have a bad childhood, it's just that I spent my entire childhood wishing I were an adult so I could do whatever I want whenever I want. And having been an adult for nearly 30 years, I have not looked back. But I play those old games simply because I prefer those old games, that's all. And being an adult helps me indulge in this interest I've had for 40 years. In 2006, when Lisa and I were living apart, I might have mentioned this before, but I moved to Chicago because of my promotion, and Lisa had to stay behind in New Jersey to finish her master's degree. But a lot of that time alone, I passed it by playing Atari games. And what was really cool about that was that Atari games were by and large dirt cheap, so I'd go on eBay and buy entire lots in the neighborhood of 20 bucks. There was a store in nearby Norwich called Video Games Etc. where I'd go and pick up some games for reasonable prices. I say was because that store has since moved a few blocks up the road to Harwood Heights and is now called Video Games Then and Now, and if you find yourself in the Chicago area and are into video games from any conceivable system, you need to go to that store. It's a really great store run by a guy named Sean Kelly. And during that time away from Lisa, I also picked up an Atari 7800, and it quickly became my favorite console ever, still is to this day 15 years later. But whatever became of my Vectrex, funny you should ask. I think it was Thanksgiving 1986, and we had family over, including my Uncle Ron and his clan, who just moved to Wisconsin from San Diego. My cousin Alex, who I think was five, maybe six years old at the time, was really digging the Vectrex. My mom said to me, you don't play that Vectrex very much anymore, do you? I said, nah, not really. And mom said, Alex really likes it. How would you feel about letting Alex keep it? And I said, why, that's a great idea, mom. <laughs> Ever hear the phrase, hindsight is twenty twenty? Years later, I regretted giving that Vectrex away, because uh, Vectrexes are a hot commodity. Vectrexes, Vectrices, uh, whatever. I know I mentioned before that traditionally my parents would hand out envelopes of cash every Christmas. A few Christmases ago, they were extremely generous with my envelope. My mom said it was partly because they didn't know what to get me for Christmas because I didn't give them many good ideas, so to make up for that, they added some cash to the envelope. So I decided to put that envelope of cash toward a Vectrex. I think it was on the Atari.io forum where somebody offered for sale a Vectrex with one controller and a multi-cart designed by Sean Kelly. Asking price, $350. Um, sadly, by the way, that's considered cheap for a working Vectrex. Indeed, when I saw Sean Kelly at Midwest Gaming Classic earlier that year, I told him how I really wanted a Vectrex, but the only Vectrexes, Vectrices, that I saw at the show, just the bare unit wasn't going for any cheaper than $400. He laughed and said he just sold his last one for $450. But the Vectrex arrived, and it was in near-perfect condition. The joystick controller could have been a little bit better, but everything worked as expected, so I was a happy guy, and I gave the seller a good rating. And multi-carts, by the way, I love those suckers. One single cartridge can hold many games, so you don't need to take up precious space in your room with separate cartridges for each game. Sean Kelly's Vectrex multi-cart had all the commercially released games, some unreleased prototypes, and a good handful of homebrew games. Which brings me to this, by the way. Another reason that I still love these old games is that people are still 
developing games for these consoles. There's an insanely active homebrew scene on the Atari 2600. There are homebrew developers out there who make games for that system that are so advanced that it's just seriously incomprehensible. I mean, after all, the Atari 2600 has 128 bytes of memory. Yes, 128 bytes. Not megabytes, not even kilobytes. Bytes. Bytes. And when that system was introduced in 1977, the 2600 was meant to be no more than a glorified Pong console, really. But because of some brilliant at-home video game developers, there are numerous Atari 2600 versions of arcade games that are frighteningly identical to their arcade equivalents. But you name a classic system, there are homebrew developers actively working on games for it. Be it Atari 2600, 5200, 7800, Vectrex, ColecoVision, NES, Intellivision, etc. Again, the reason I love these games is because, well, simply I love them. Nostalgia has absolutely nothing to do with it. Now, that was one point I wanted to raise. Another point I want to raise is, well, basically some video game myth-busting while I'm on the subject. For one thing, common Atari 2600 lore is that the E.T. video game that was released for the system as a tie-in for the movie of the same name is the worst video game ever, and it led to the North American video game crash of 1983. Well, that's simply not true. While E.T. did get its share of trashing, it's by far not even the worst game ever released for the Atari 2600. Part of the reason some gamers didn't like E.T. was that simply they didn't understand how to play it. But if you actually read the manual and learn the gameplay, it's actually not a bad game at all. It's not a great game, but it's not bad. It was designed by the great Howard Scott Warshaw under the close supervision of Steven Spielberg himself. And on top of that, E.T. really did sell pretty well, in the millions. In fact, in the documentary Atari Game Over, Howard said that all three games he designed for the 2600 sold in the millions. And that's absolutely true. In fact, one of those three games, Yar's Revenge, is widely considered one of the finest games ever released for that console. So, Warshaw likes to joke that he designed the widest range in terms of quality for the Atari 2600. The worst and the best. And speaking of Atari Game Over, something else I need to address is the decades-long rumor that E.T. sold so few copies and so many were returned that Atari buried them in a landfill in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Atari's 2600 version of Pac-Man was also rumored to suffer the same fate. Well, in 2013, that landfill was excavated, and that excavation was covered in Atari Game Over. It was found that the rumors about the Alamogordo landfill dumpage were actually... true. Eh, to an extent. Indeed, when the landfill was dug up, there were copies of Pac-Man and E.T. found, along with Centipede, Galaxian, Star Raiders, Defender, and other games that were actually critical and commercial successes. And it wasn't just games that were found either, but also joysticks and other hardware components. It turns out that the Alamogordo site was just a catch-all dumping ground for all of Atari's overstock and was not a reflection of poor sales. Remember how I was kind of caught off guard by the Atari 2600 Pac-Man? Well, so were many other fans. A lot of people hated that version. The colors were off, the sound was weird, and overall the game felt virtually nothing like the arcade equivalent. The suits at Atari were convinced that everybody would want to play Pac-Man at home, so they produced more Pac-Man cartridges than the number of 2600 consoles that actually existed at the time. 
they predicted that the Pac-Man cartridge would be in such high demand that it would actually cause a corresponding demand of more Atari 2600 systems. Well, that turned out not to be the case. Their Pac-Man cartridge was not the runaway mammoth blockbuster that Atari expected, although the game technically was a commercial success. It did sell in the millions, and at one point it became the pack-in game with the console. Indeed, to this day, if you're buying a group of used Atari 2600 cartridges, I can almost promise you Pac-Man will be in that mix. But it was a critical flop because of the paucity of resemblance to its arcade counterpart. You know how the arcade version has cutscenes every certain number of mazes you clear, you get a little intermission, a little animation with the monsters chasing Pac-Man and everything? Well, that was not on the Atari 2600 version. The monsters were now called ghosts, and there was a lot of flicker, and I think that they used the term ghosts to kind of implicitly explain that flicker. And there were only two different colors of ghosts, as opposed to the arcade counterpart, which had four colors of monsters. For some reason, Pac-Man now had an eye, and he could only face left and right. Even when he moved up and down, he was still facing either left or right. Instead of a black background with blue maze walls, the game was set against a blue background with orange maze walls. Now, I know I remember seeing years ago somebody in the Atari Age forum said that Atari asked its 2600 developers to avoid using black backgrounds if possible unless the game was set either at night or in space, but nobody seems to remember making that claim, so I don't know. And you know how uh, each level of Pac-Man had a different bonus prize? You had a pair of cherries, there was a strawberry, there was a bell, there was a Galaxian flagship, there was a key, and they were all worth different point values. Well, throw that all away because in the Atari 2600 Pac-Man, it's just a vitamin pill as the bonus prize for every round. And it's 100 points no matter what level it is. The arcade version of Pac-Man gave you an extra life when you passed 10,000 points. That is, assuming the cabinet is using the default settings, the owner could adjust the settings so that you wouldn't get a bonus Pac-Man until 15,000 points or 20,000 points, or maybe no extra life at all. On the Atari 2600 Pac-Man, you get an extra life every time you clear the maze. But overall, a lot of people just did not like it. Me, I was put off at first, but I learned to love it really fast. It was all about the gameplay, and for me, as an 8-year-old, I could now play Pac-Man at home. I knew it was virtually nothing like its arcade version, but I didn't care. I really didn't, and I still enjoy a game of it to this day every once in a while. There are many homebrew developers who have, over the years, come up with their own interpretations of how Pac-Man could have been so much better, and every one of these homebrew versions I've seen is great in its own way. Sometimes just as little as a color change makes all the difference in the world. Getting back to my point before, Pac-Man on the 2600 was a critical failure but a commercial success. One other myth that I want to address involves Coleco. Coleco released game cartridges not just for its own ColecoVision console, but also for Atari 2600 and Intellivision. One of the ColecoVision's selling points was its advanced graphics and sound, and that its arcade conversions very strongly resembled the original arcade versions. Well, there's a long-standing belief to this day that Coleco intentionally sabotaged the games that they made for Atari and Intellivision so that people would be drawn more to the ColecoVision so they could have better versions of the games. 
Those who believe this theory often use Donkey Kong Zaxxon and Donkey Kong Jr. as examples. Uh, indeed, the Atari 2600 versions and uh, the Intellivision versions aren't really the best quality they could be, while the ColecoVision versions were quite good. Well, this conspiracy theory, as it were, it's simply not true. Those who developed the games released by Coleco all had the same goal in mind. Regardless of what console they were developing for, they wanted to sell as many games as possible. Plus, many if not all of them were outside contractors, so they really didn't care one way or the other about tanking any particular system. They just wanted to produce the best product they could given the strict time limits they're given and collect their paycheck, of course. Also, if Coleco had its developers intentionally make bad product, especially given how many copies of their Atari 2600 and Intellivision games sold, that would be a huge amount of money they would be throwing away. That's a pretty poorly thought out strategy. Now, going back to what caused the video game crash to happen, it was not E.T. and it was not Pac-Man on the Atari 2600. I mean, why would one game on one of many consoles cause an entire industry to collapse? Well, the answer to that is about as complicated as to say why the Beatles broke up. And no, the cause of the video game crash was not Yoko. Go back to that previous question. Why would one game on one of many consoles crash an entire industry? There's a problem right there. Many consoles. In 1983, there were several video game systems out on the market. There was the Atari 2600, the Atari 5200, Vectrex, Intellivision, ColecoVision, Odyssey 2. That's six consoles right there. And I might have even missed a few. As opposed to today, what video game consoles are there? I can think of the current Xbox, the current PlayStation, and the Nintendo Switch. That's it. Now, going back to those six consoles, think about this. Let's just say there were eh, 50 games on each console. Of course, that's a big overestimation for the Vectrex and Odyssey 2, but a huge underestimation for the Intellivision and especially the Atari 2600, which had literally hundreds of games available at one point. Basically, the market was oversaturated with home video games, and many of the games available for the various consoles were made cheaply by fly-by-night third-party companies, and those games often flat-out sucked. On top of that, in 1983, video game consoles were starting to lose favor because home computers were almost affordable, and there were several to pick from. The Texas Instruments 99-4A, various models of Apple II, and the Macintosh was about to hit the market in January 1984. There was the Commodore VIC-20 in 64, Atari 400 and 800, TRS-80, also known as the Trash-80, Timex Sinclair, better known as the ZX Spectrum in Europe, the Coleco Atom. Home computers were appealing because they were handy for everybody in the family. A computer could be used for budgeting, word processing, record keeping, including address books and recipes, by the way, music and drawing and other art projects, and of course, video gaming. Many households were finding it more worthwhile to invest in a costlier computer than a one-trick pony video game unit. Many believe that the video game crash of 1983 is what caused Nintendo's mid-80s gaming console to not have the phrase video game in its name, Hence the name Famicom, short for family computer in Japan, and of course Nintendo Entertainment System in North America. But what these folks fail to realize is that virtually none of the major video game consoles before then actually had the term game or video game in their names. 
The Atari 2600, remember, was called the Video Computer System. The 5200 was the Super System. The 7800 was the Pro System. Intellivision had the phrase Intelligent Television on the console. The Odyssey 2, interestingly, called itself a Processor. The only of the major consoles that used the term game or video game was ColecoVision. I think really that it's the video game crash that firmly established the difference between the old style, you always lose but you're challenged to improve your score, video games, and the newer, beat the boss characters and the CEO characters and the game's over, games. But if my preference for the older type of games makes me stuck in the past, then fine, I'm stuck in the past. Just because in the present, those old school games are what I like. I kind of hinted at this, if not totally mentioned it, but one of the reasons I much prefer being an adult than being a kid is that I can do anything I want legally, which means if I want to just play video games, I can do that. Now, here's the thing. When I was eight or nine years old, when these games were at the height of their popularity, I was really too young to go anywhere. My parents wouldn't take me to uh, the local arcades. We had two or three in the area, and I had to wait every month to go to Aladdin's Castle at Lincoln Mall to play these games. If you had told me that when I was an adult, I would be within driving distance of five or six places where I could go pay one fee and play these classic arcade games all I want for an entire day, good lord, I would have just, I don't know what I would have done. I probably would have found a way to rip Van Winkle myself straight into 2013 or something. (laughs) But yeah, I'm so thankful that we have those kinds of places. If any of you are interested in classic video game arcades, check around in your area, see if there are any that you can patronize and please support them. I can't imagine it's the most profitable kind of business in the world, and any support you can give them would be great. We want to keep these things alive. You know what else we want to keep alive? Music. That's a rough transition right there. Now, what I'm going to be doing for music for Schnooks, I'm going to not talk about a group or an album or present my own music here because, well, it's been done. Am I going to do it again someday? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just this time, I want to take a little bit of a pivot Thanks to a listener suggestion, I'm going to kind of turn things a bit and focus on music, a musical topic that's actually cinematic. And I'm going to call this segment, That Thing You Blast. I truly hope that when making my second favorite movie of all time, Tom Hanks was influenced at least to some degree by one of the absolute worst movies I've ever seen. Now, there are some characteristics of a movie that can get my attention. If music plays a pivotal role in the movie, it might pique my interest. I've not been shy on this podcast about my love for the city of Chicago, so if a movie is set or filmed in Chicago, of course it's going to grab my attention. Certainly that explains why The Blues Brothers is my all-time favorite movie. Second favorite? That Thing You Do, the 1996 movie that was the first that Tom Hanks both wrote and directed. The movie is most certainly about music, but my beloved Chicago has nothing to do with it. But still, that's how good the movie is, that even though it doesn't have anything to do with Chicago, it's still one of my all-time favorites. 
There is one movie that is about music that was filmed largely in Chicago that definitely piqued my interest, but mostly for, well, not so good reasons. It's really a terribly made movie. I speak of the 1967 Herschel Gordon Lewis exploitation movie, Blast Off Girls. And I'm just going to tell you right now, despite the title and what the trailer shows, said girls are hardly in the movie at all. But anyway, it kind of makes me sad, though, how few people have actually seen that thing you do. So on the assumption that those of you listening may not have seen it, I'm going to give you a little bit of a uh, summary, maybe not so much a summary because you're not going to hear the whole plot. I don't want to spoil everything. But the movie takes place in 1964, spring and summer, the height of Beatlemania, and it's about a four-piece garage band from Erie, Pennsylvania. You have Jimmy Mattingly, played by Jonathan Sheikh? Sheikh? I don't know how to pronounce his name. (laughs) But uh, Jimmy is the leader of the group and the lead singer and the rhythm guitarist. He's the main songwriter of the group, and he's kind of a jerk, really. He's He's all full of attitude, and he fancies himself a genius. Then there's Leonard Hayes, better known as Lenny. He's played by the great Steve Zahn, and he's the lead guitarist. Lenny is kind of a fool, kind of a goofy guy, but he has a heart of gold, at least in my opinion. And there's the bass player, whose name is, um, well, never said. They always refer to him as the bass player. Hey, where's our bass player? Your bass player is late. (laughs) And in fact, even in the closing credits, his name is listed as T.B. Player, the bass player. He was played by a then-teenaged Ethan Embry. Now, Ethan made up his own little backstory in which TB player's name is actually Tobias. And then they have this drummer played by Giovanni Rabisi. I don't know about the rest of you, but I recognized him personally from the later seasons of The Wonder Years. But he was Chad the drummer. So early in the movie, we see the band and Jimmy's girlfriend, Faye, hanging out, having lunch. And they're discussing band names because they don't have a name for the band yet. Off to the side is this hipster guy named Guy Patterson. Now, the band somehow knows him. Uh, In the expanded version of the movie That Thing You Do, it's clear that Lenny and Guy go way back. Uh, Guy's more of a jazz fan, and Guy himself is a drummer. He's a jazz drummer, and he loves playing drums. Well, Lenny tells Guy to come check him out at the Mercyhurst College talent show, and Lenny kind of predicts that it's going to be a disaster. Well, later on... Chad is playing leapfrog on some parking meters, and he breaks his arm when he takes a really bad fall. So they ask Guy to join the band, which he agrees to. So basically, at this point, the band consists of Jimmy, Lenny, the bass player, and Guy now on drums. So we'll get back to that in a little bit. Tom Hanks plays their eventual manager, Mr. White, and I'll get back to that later as well. Now, said manager is what I'm going to have a little bit of a focus on, for now at least, because the manager is also a key player in Blast Off Girls. Now, the two movies are quite different, but there are hints of similarities. In both movies, the band in focus gets a new name before hitting it big. In That Thing You Do the band decides on the name The Wonders, except they want to spell it kind of a punny way. Jimmy had some kind of obsession with that. He was considering The Herdsman, but spelling it H-E-A-R-D-S-M-E-N, as he says to refer to one of the six senses. So when they decide on The Wonders, Faye says, hey, why don't you guys spell it O-N-E, kind of like how the Beatles spell Beatles, B-E-A-T, instead of B-E-E-T. You know how, like, the Beatles, the Beatles, they use an E-A as the Beatles? Well, we can use an O-N-E, like the Wonders. You're talking gibberish. 
No, look. The Wonders. Lenny. Yeah, it looks like the Oneaters. No, the, the Wonders. Got it. Looks like the Oneaters. So O-N-E-D-E-R-S, one Ders, as in we're going to hit number one. And sure as heck. They're all locals. They call you home. The Oneaters. It's the Wonders. So when Mr. White takes over as the band's manager, the first thing he does is rename them the Wonders, W-O-N-D-E-R-S, just to eliminate the confusion. In Blast Off Girls, um, I believe the band is unnamed at first, at least I don't believe their name is ever mentioned, but in real life, they were a local Chicago band called The Faded Blue. Now, this so far unnamed band is obviously struggling to attract crowds at local gigs, and so they're on the verge of breaking up because what else can they do? Until they are approached by Boogie Baker. Uh, Yeah, that's right. Somebody's parents decided that their little baby should be named Boogie. Boogie convinces the band to make him their manager. Now, Boogie Baker really, I guess a good way to describe him, he's Lucius Malfoy, complete with stylish walking stick, with the head of Draco Malfoy, not only in looks, but also attitude, demeanor, uh, superiority complex, you name it. Basically being a general hole, you name it. You can tell right away that this guy is a sleaze. He offers the band a no-contract deal of a 50-50 split in profits, minus an upgrade of wardrobe and amplifiers. Working with Bougie is his assistant Gordy, played by Ray Sager, and Gordy tries his darndest to sound cool. He attempts to speak hip every time he opens his mouth. Um, whether that was Gordy the character or Ray the actor trying to sound cool, well, that's to be determined, I guess. Also working with Bougie is a rotation of various girlfriends, uh, who I guess are the credited blast-off girls, and he uses these girlfriends to seduce and blackmail, well, everybody really. (laughs) The thing is, we first see Bougie, uh, portrayed by the late Dan Conway, at the very beginning of the movie as the manager of another unnamed band, uh, this one played by a local Chicago band named Charlie. The film opens with Charlie apparently performing at a semi-large venue, although it becomes quickly apparent that it's a soundstage with cutaways to stock footage of people dancing. And uh, to be honest, they're a pretty decent band. They're playing a catchy little rocker with some tight vocal harmonies. The bassist plays a violin-shaped Hofner bass, undoubtedly inspired by Paul McCartney, and another guitarist plays a black Rickenbacker, looks like a Rick 360. And off the top of my head, the other guitarist plays what looks to me like a Gibson SG, but with the really weird lighting in this movie, I can't really tell. I also can't tell who the lead guitarist is versus the rhythm guitarist, because it's obvious that the band is miming to a recording, and they're not exactly playing on screen in sync with the recording. Uh, The only decent mimer is the singer, really. But whoever the lead guitarist is, though, it seems that he's under the impression that he gets paid per note. The band ends its set with a rocked-up cover of Goodnight Ladies from The Music Man. Here's enough, kids. Time for Betty Bye. Get home safely so we can see you again. Good night, ladies. And then they approach Bougie for their share of the gate for the night. 
Buji claims it was a poor turnout of 500, maybe 600 patrons, so he offers the band $200. However, the band's bassist, who, by the way, appears to be trying to look like Pete Townsend, did his own head count and found that it was actually over 800, so the band demands 400. Buji refuses, so the band gangs up on him, pins him against the wall, swipes the wallet from his coat, and by the way, you can hear his coat rub up against uh, Dan Conway's lavalier. Two hundred more. That nice suit gets wrinkled. Right. And they claim the rest of the money they feel they're owed. And by the way, I did notice that when they return the wallet to Bougie, there's still some money in it. So they didn't just grab all of his money. They probably literally took just the two hundred they felt they were owed. Bougie responds by threatening to report a recent party thrown for the band uh, to the police. Apparently, there were some then illegal herbs smoked. The band just laughs, obviously knowing Bougie well enough that it's just an empty threat. Then they officially fire Bougie and bid him adieu by performing a reprise of Goodnight Ladies, but with the word ladies replaced with the word Bougie. This opening scene is basically a foreshadowing of what Bougie would do with The Faded Blue, the next band he discovers and renames The Big Blast. Now, in the movie That Thing You Do, the Wonders actually have two managers. Their first one is named Phil Horace, played by Chris Ellis. He becomes the manager kind of the same way that Bougie Baker became The Big Blast's manager. Just basically a cold call. He met with the band after watching them perform at a local venue. Now, the thing is, you as a viewer, when you first see Phil Horace, you're probably suspicious of his motives. He seems a little bit shady. Horace does not come across as a manager at all, especially because he holds the meeting in a camper and he serves the band beer and baked beans and it's still morning. <laughs> Unlike Bougie Baker, though, Horace actually does have the band sign a contract. He summarizes the contract for them in very simple language. <laughs> it's a standard management contract. It says if I do my job, you guys make money. And here's your guarantee. If I don't get this record going, and I mean serious radio airplay inside of a week, 10 days at the most, we'll tear this up, and I'm no longer your manager. So let's get back to our friend Bougie Baker. It's clear that this guy has a lot of money, so one wonders how many bands he had already exploited at this point. Whatever the case, he also clearly has connections. One of those connections is an executive at a record label whom he blackmails into signing the Big Blast after um, setting him up with a rendezvous with uh, one of his attractive lady friends. He tells Bougie, get the Big Blast into the studio, tell him to record a fast song and a ballad. Before the Wonders met Phil Horace, they did manage to record a couple of their songs and had them pressed under records. Remember Guy Patterson, their new drummer? Well, just so happens he has a connection to the music industry. His uncle Bob, played by Chris Isaac, has a mobile recording studio that he uses to record church services and other religious events. Uh, in the uh, extended version of the movie, it turns out that guy comes from a pretty religious family. And Uncle Bob would agree to record them for a fee and have some records made up for them. So Uncle Bob meets with a band in a church and they record two songs. That Thing You Do, a rocker that was a hit with their fans at the pizza place where they had a residency, the same song that won them the talent show, and what turned out to be the B-side was a slow ballad called All My Only Dreams, which Jimmy Mattingly is believed to have written for his girlfriend Faye. Forgot to mention, Faye is portrayed by Liv Tyler. 
I guess maybe that's not a huge coincidence that The Wonders and The Big Blast both recorded one fast and one slow song for the single. I mean, it was pretty common, at least back in the 60s, for bands to do that. Have a rocker on one side, have a slow ballad on the other. The Beatles did it, the Beach Boys did it, and, uh, well, I'm not going to get off on that tangent right now, but it does become evident that both Phil Horace and Bougie Baker are in it primarily for the money. The difference, though, is how they get that money, and their business ethics, of course. Phil actually does what he promises. He works his butt off. In the extended version of That Thing You Do, you can see that the song That Thing You Do just couldn't get any attention whatsoever. Phil was struggling, but then all of a sudden, on day 10 of the promised 10-day period that Phil said he'd get the song on the air, suddenly a radio station plays it, and we eventually learn that they ended up playing it three times that afternoon. Horace performed some more of his magic and was able to get the Wonders on the bill at a major multi-artist show in Pittsburgh, quite a step up from a pizza parlor in Erie. And we find out that not only did Horace get the Wonders on the bill, but he also managed to get Mr. White to attend the show. Who is Mr. White? He is an A&R man from Playtone Records. Despite a disastrous afternoon performance that involved poor sound and an out-of-rhythm playthrough of that thing you do, Mr. White liked what he saw and heard, and he asked the Wonders to sign with Playtone, which would mean that they would have to ditch Horace, and Mr. White would become their new manager. Well, the band doesn't want to part with Horace, but Phil urges them to sign the contract. So, we see that Horace was basically just in it for a quick payday. I think the implication is that Phil Horace was kind of a hobo with a camper who happens to become a talent scout when he needs more cash. So, I talked about Phil Horace versus Bougie Baker in terms of management, but how about Mr. White versus Bougie Baker? In terms of physical appearance, uh, he's much closer to Bougie Baker than Horace was, uh, dressing sharply in suits, perfectly styled hair, uh, no walking stick though. But as with Horace, White very diligently works to get the wonders as much exposure as possible. Of course, because he's an A&R man at a major record label, he's able to work up some much grander scale magic. He books the wonders on the Playtone Records tour of state fairs. One similarity that both Bougie Baker and Mr. White have in common is that they managed to book their respective bands on major Sunday night network TV shows. And when each band decided to depart its respective manager, there was kind of a farewell song involved. I'll get to that in a moment. The Big Blast quickly realized that their entire purpose is to make money for Bougie, and maybe if they were playing nice, Bougie might consider sharing a small portion of it with them despite the promise of 50-50. Remember, they did not have a contract. When the band confronts Bougie about their frustrations and about the deal, he apologizes and invites them to a party thrown in their honor. At said party, the guys in the Big Blast partake in some, uh, well, let's just say happy agriculture, and a police lieutenant busts the party. Bougie shows up, and the lieutenant agrees to let the guys in the Big Blast off with a warning if Bougie can vouch for their character. In return, Bougie presses the band to sign a contract with him. Uh, let's just say this contract is not one that works in the band's favor, but they'd rather not go to jail so they end up signing. It turns out that Bougie was personal friends with the lieutenant, who uh, actually asks Bougie to hook him up with some of said happy agriculture after the band leaves. Meanwhile, Bougie uses his clout, and uh, let's just call it what it is, uh, evil manipulation to book the band on the unnamed Sunday night TV show, 
with the agreement that the Big Blast would debut a brand new song because apparently audiences were getting tired of their current hit. All the frustrations involved with dealing with Bougie were coming to a head while the band were rehearsing for the show, to the point that the lead guitarist was ready to just leave the band in a huff, which prompted the rest of the band to improvise a new song that they ultimately decided would be the song they'd perform on TV. As for the Wonders and their TV appearance, well, it was pretty easy. They just had to take the stage on Hollywood Television Showcase, a late Sunday night comedy variety show that would have a different celebrity host every week. Hmm, sound familiar? and they would just perform that thing you do. At this point, the bass player disappeared. He disappeared the day of the airing. Turns out he befriended some Marines at the hotel's restaurant and spent the day hanging out with them and basically ran away with them, really. Early in the movie, we learned that the bass player actually enlisted in the Marines and was planning to leave the band at the end of the summer tour anyway. It just so happens that now he's gone early. So, because the bass player disappeared, Mr. White called in a favor with a Hollywood session player. So, already the band is starting to split. Shortly after the broadcast, which for the Wonders was a success, their performance was absolutely tight and flawless, Mr. White brought the band into a recording studio so they could finally record some new material, which was a huge concern Jimmy kept bringing up throughout the movie. I want to record new music. When are we going to record new music? But all was not happy. For one thing... Lenny was missing in action. It turned out he and the record label's receptionist ran off to Vegas to get married, and they were essentially as good as gone. This left only Guy and Jimmy from the band's main lineup, plus Scott Wolfman Pell, the session musician that Mr. White enlisted to fill in on Hollywood Television Showcase. Jimmy is also unhappy with Mr. White's instructions. While Jimmy wants to record all original material, Mr. White points out that the contract explicitly states not only that the band has to record music from the Playtone repertoire, but they also have to re-record that thing you do in Spanish. Jimmy would be allowed to contribute one song per album side, but Mr. White said that that one song per side has to be a happy up-tempo tune rather than the typical lover's lament kind of song that he tends to write. Jimmy responds by stepping up to the microphone and performing a happy up-tempo number with a big grin on his face. He kind of improvises, I... I quit. I quit. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> I quit, Mr. White. And then he walks out. But let's get back to the big blast. At the beginning of the TV show scene, Mr. Roswell, the TV show's producer, is berating Bougie because they're ready to tape the show, but the band is nowhere to be found. Look, Baker, do you have any idea what it costs to run this studio? Where are your boys? <laughs> they're probably stuck in traffic. They'll be here in a second. They'd better be. We tape it too, with them or without them. Unlike Hollywood Television Showcase, this unnamed TV show is not broadcast live, and Mr. Roswell makes it clear that if it were a live broadcast, he would have already decided to... 86 The Big Blast's appearance. Frankly, I've heard they're all on pot and LSD. If this show were in front of a live audience, I wouldn't have them. Oh no, Mr. Roswell, they're a wonderful bunch. Bougie tries to get Barbara, his current blast-off girl for the day, to calm Mr. Roswell down with uh, some flirtatious moves, but before she can even start, Mr. Roswell calls Bougie out on that, and he scolds Barbara for stooping so low, to which Barbara responds by smacking Bougie across the face and walking out. Eventually, the big blast shows up, but it's apparent that they're literally falling over drunk. Today, we came to play without your fighting expression instrument. 
After some threats from Bougie and Mr. Roswell, the band is able to compose themselves enough to get behind their instruments. The director instructs the band to start playing, so they perform their new song that they improvised during rehearsal, which they dedicate to Bougie. Let's listen to it. I'd like to dedicate this song to our manager, the illustrious Bougie Baker, who has done so much to us, for us. A one and a two and a... What should my friend do? Pretend that he were you. Here's some good advice for guys who act like lice. song, isn't it? Before the band can finish the song, the director calls for the crew to shut it down. Bougie is enraged that the big blast blew the show and warned them that they were in violation of their contract. Well, much as the band Charlie did in the opening scene of the movie, the big blast gang up on Bougie, who just happened to have the contract handy. They pull the contract out of his jacket and tear it up. Bougie storms off the set with Gordy, threatening to make sure that the big blast never works again and that his next band will be bigger than the Big Blast ever was. This is in direct contrast to what happened with the Wonders. After Jimmy quit, Mr. White commented that the band was in breach of contract. The Wonders are in breach of contract. I'm really sorry, Mr. White. Well, don't worry. No one's going to prison, son. It's a very common tale. Well, maybe for you, but I was in a band and we still have a hit record. Yeah, you do. One hit Wonders. It's a very common tale. And in the epilogue during the closing credits, we learn that Jimmy implicitly fulfilled the contract by staying with Playtone as a producer. The soundtrack's liner notes imply that Jimmy was also a Playtone performer, leading a band called The Herdsmen, who apparently consisted of just random session musicians that Jimmy would pull together at any given time. Remember, The Herdsmen was what Jimmy wanted to originally call The Wonders before they settled on The Oneaters, as it were. <laughs> Both That Thing You Do and Blast Off Girls have elements that were obviously taken from real life. Both movies include a musical romp, that is a montage set over a piece of music with uh, visuals that depict a lot of, uh, well, silliness, playfulness. We see a musical romp during the closing credits of Blast Off Girls. The romp was filmed mostly on Michigan Avenue in downtown Chicago and Riverview Park, an amusement park on the north side of Chicago that would close for good later that year. This was undoubtedly inspired by the romp in the Monkees pilot episode. Uh, fun fact for you, their pilot episode was not the first episode that was aired. Uh, that actually aired a little bit later in the first season. The Monkees romp was filmed at another local amusement park, Kitty Kingdom at Belmont Park in San Diego. The romp in That Thing You Do features pictures of the band on amusement park rides, so I'm thinking there must be some monkeys influence there too, although more than likely the musical romp concept was pioneered by the Beatles in the movie A Hard Day's Night when they're romping in a wide open field to the strains of Can't Buy Me Love. By the way, the romp isn't the only parallel among That Thing You Do and the Beatles and the monkeys. Jimmy Mattingly, well, we know that he was very protective of his music, and he wanted both feet in the door of the creative process. And remember, he was allowed to write, possibly also produce, one song per album side, kind of like Mike Nesmith. 
although all the monkeys were concerned about how Don Kirshner's control over the band limited, if not completely eliminated, any chances they had of creative input, Nesmith was by far the loudest about it, getting so angry at one point that he literally punched a hole in a hotel wall, then saying to Kirshner, that could have been your face, mother Nesmith also was allowed one song per album side, a promise that was fulfilled on both of the albums that the Monkees recorded under Kirshner's supervision. Another Monkees connection here, undoubtedly nothing more than coincidence, Tony Basil was the choreographer for the movie That Thing You Do. She was also the choreographer for the Monkees 1968 movie Head, in which she also appears dancing with Davy Jones during the Daddy's Song scene. And by the way, if you've not seen the movie Head, I strongly recommend you go to YouTube and search for Daddy's Song. Seriously, that is some of the finest editing I have ever seen. Check it out. As for the Beatles, well, there are a lot of parallels. And remember, in the world of the wonders, the Beatles actually did exist because, well, they were mentioned at least twice during the movie. Hey, how come you guys don't have long hair like the Beatles? What's the matter? Don't you guys like the Beatles? But let's go back to Guy Patterson replacing Chad as the drummer. I don't think we ever learned Chad's last name. The Wonders didn't have any success until Guy Patterson was their drummer. Kind of like how the Beatles practically couldn't get arrested until they replaced Pete Best with Ringo Starr. And uh, in an interesting coincidence, Guy Patterson strongly resembles Pete Best, and I really do think it's just a coincidence because in real life, Tom Everett Scott, who played Guy Patterson, did look like Pete Best. I don't know if he still looks like Pete Best. I haven't seen a recent picture of him. Actually, I take it back. I saw a recent picture of him last year when uh, the Wonders reunited for a uh, live commentary on the movie, but um, yeah, he, he does still kind of look like Pete Best, actually. Uh, anyway, another thing about Guy joining the band, when Guy joined the Wonders, they rehearsed in the garage, making them a real garage band. They're playing that thing you do, and at that point, it's a slow ballad. And if you look at Guy, he is clearly bored out of his mind. It's basically an unexciting tune, an unexciting rhythm. Now there's a shot of Guy looking very bored that closely resembles a semi-famous picture of the Beatles from their really early days before they had a permanent drummer. In this photograph, there is a drummer named Tommy Moore sitting in with the band, and Moore has a very bored expression on his face, very similar to Guy Patterson's expression. Uh, I'll post a link to that picture if I can find one. Uh, go to schnookpodcast.com and look for the online bibliography for this episode. Now, later on at the talent show, when the Wonders are introduced as the O'Neaters, of course, for obvious reasons, Guy is responsible for counting off the song. So he counts it off. One, two, Three, four, but it's a much faster count in than what it should have been. And he starts playing this really rocked up fast rhythm. One, two, three, four. Yeah. Oh, that's too fast, guy. Slow down. Come on. Come on. Slow down. Too fast. Slow down. Jimmy, of course, is freaking out. Guy, what are you doing? That's too fast. But Guy just ignores him, keeps playing. So Jimmy decides, well, might as well just go with it. So he starts playing and singing. The rest of the band is kind of puzzled. They're wondering what the hell's going on. Then they're actually able to keep up with Guy's new fast rhythm. And even the bass player looks shocked that he's able to keep up with it. The, I mean, really, the look on his face is, oh, my God, I can actually play this. <laughs> but they're playing a fast rock and roll version of that thing you do. Totally different from what they rehearsed. 
And it's pretty clear why Guy made this decision. It's because all the other acts before them were kind of boring and lame. And having this really slow number wasn't going to make them stand out. So that was an obvious decision. Turn it into a rock and roll song. And sure enough, everybody loved it. Everybody was dancing to it. And they got a huge applause and ended up winning the talent show. That performance landed them the gig at the pizza parlor where they attracted a big crowd every night. The records that Uncle Bob made were selling like hotcakes at their gigs. It was obviously the right decision. Well, that last minute decision to make that thing you do from a ballad to a rocker is obviously inspired by the story of the Beatles song, Please Please Me. Most Beatles fans know the story, but here it is in a nutshell. When the Beatles were going to record Please Please Me, it was originally a slow Roy Orbison-type ballad, but George Martin, the producer, suggested that they turn it into a rocker. So after they finished recording Please Please Me as a rocker, the story is that George Martin said over the talkback, Congratulations, boys, you just recorded your first number one. And sure enough, Please Please Me did go to number one on several, but not all, of the industry charts in England. So in both cases, that thing you do and Please Please Me became a hit after it was changed from a ballad to a rocker. Now, let's talk about Mr. White, the A&R guy who took over as the Wonders manager. There are several parallels between him and Brian Epstein, or is it Epstein, the Beatles manager? I'm just going to say Epstein for now, because according to Martin Lewis, who wrote the preface in a repressing of Brian Epstein's autobiography, he says that it's supposed to be pronounced Epstein, so I'll just go with that. For one thing, Mr. White had the Wonders wear sharp matching suits, just like Epstein did with the Beatles, and also Bougie Baker did the same with the Big Blast. But then again, I don't think that was really unique. That was a pretty common practice back then, I believe. Also, there were shots of Mr. White among the crowd during state fair performances that strongly resemble similar shots of Brian Epstein during the Beatles' appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show and the Shea Stadium concert. There's another parallel that you only know about if you watch the extended version of that thing you do. It's well known that Brian Epstein was a semi-closeted homosexual, well, it turns out that Mr. White was gay as well, except that he wasn't quite as closeted. Uh, in the extended cut, he is very unshy about his boyfriend Lloyd, portrayed by former Oakland Raider Howie Long. Another likely hint at Beatles influence? Remember how I said that Mr. White reminds Jimmy of the terms of his contract? He said that that thing you do was to be re-recorded in Spanish. Given how common Spanish is in the United States, I'm sure many audiences wouldn't think twice about that. They're like, okay, that's pretty obvious. It's a nice idea. But more than likely, this little piece of the movie was inspired by German record label Odeon's request to their English-speaking artists to record their hits in German to make them appeal more to German-speaking audiences. As a result, the Beatles recorded Komm gib mir deine Hand. Komm gib mir deine Hand. And for Odeon Records, who released those German versions on a single. Perhaps the mention of recording that thing you do in Spanish could have been a reference to the Monkees theme song being re-recorded in Italian. I don't know. Ci 
Siamo meno matti di chi si crede più intelligente di noi che la pensiamo così. Just throwing it out there, probably not likely, but anyway, uh, one major part of the movie that is absolutely inspired by the Beatles, when the Beatles performed on the Ed Sullivan Show for the first time, during their performance of the song Till There Was You, hmm, another uh, Music Man song, by the way, the Beatles' names were CG'd onto the screen. When they got to John Lennon, under his name were the words, Sorry Girls, He's Married. That's right, Sorry Girls, not Sorry Girls, there's no comma there. (laughs) Well, while the Wonders were performing on Hollywood Television Showcase, when Jimmy's name was on the screen, under his name were the words, Careful Girls, He's Engaged. Again, no comma, so it's not Careful Girls, it's Careful Girls. Jimmy, who, by the way, habitually had a guitar-playing stance similar to that of John Lennon, saw the caption on the studio monitor, and uh, he has this pissed-off look on his face when he sees that. He's obviously not pleased, but nonetheless, he was able to recompose his face and continue the performance without a problem. But after the performance, backstage, Jimmy raised a big stink, saying that the last thing he needed was to be engaged, and he demanded to know who was responsible for that. Well, Mr. White implied that Mr. White was the one to tell the crew to put that on the screen. Which one of you butts said we're engaged? Same person who said you had class, Jimmy. And by the way, I found it strange that when Lenny's name was on the screen, it actually read Leo, and his facial reaction was more one of excitement. He was like, oh my god, my name's on the screen. So I found it, found it weird they called him Leo at that point. And by the way, there's one thing that keeps coming up as a supposed Beatles parallel that I have to say is absolutely not. Some viewers believe that Mr. White's first name is Andy, One clue is that the write-up in the soundtrack liner notes was credited to A.M. White. And by the way, judging from the liner notes, we learned that as of 1996, Mr. White was still with Playtone, and in fact was now president of Playtone Entertainment in New York. So we know that Mr. White's first name starts with A. But why Andy? Well, in the scene in which the Wonders have a press conference at Playtone's headquarters, They very briefly meet company president Saul Seiler, played brilliantly by the late Alex Rocco. It's clear that Seiler has neither any clue nor any care as to who the Wonders are. All he cares about is they make him money. And he makes up a false story off the top of his head as to how he discovered the Wonders. Uh, Well, that story is actually in the extended version. It's not in the standard version, but still. I want to tell you about my new boys, the Wonders. Top 10 and fastest ever teen sensation. Caused the worst riot in Texas since Oswald got shot. Check this out, I'm in Detroit, and the insomniacs up, right? So I go for a drive way out in the boonies. I come across this neon sawdust dive, but what am I seeing? It is jammed with kids, and why? These wonders are playing music like nectar. My ears do not lie. I sign them, I grab them, and they are here. You signed us. Never mind. How'd you like Texas? Uh, In an attempt to get his foot in the creative door, Jimmy walks over to Siler and tries to uh, introduce himself and give him an elevator pitch. Siler, though, he did not like people talking to him when he was trying to eat, so he starts screaming while his mouth was very full, prompting Mr. White to run over to him and pull Jimmy away. Many people think that Siler is screaming, Andy! And uh, given that Mr. White immediately runs over, he must have been referring to Mr. White. Well, as I was putting my script together for this segment, I stopped right here and watched that scene. 
What Mr. Siler is yelling through his sandwich stuffed mouth is uh, honestly incomprehensible. You can't really tell what he's yelling. Excuse me, Mr. Siler. James Madeline II, lead singer of The Wonders. I wrote that thing you do. I wrote many other songs that I think we should make an appointment and share. What is Jimmy doing? Jimmy. What in the bloody hell is this? Are this in during my lunchtime? Yeah, like I got time on my hands. You want to get Fabian away from me? And the reason Mr. White quickly ran over to Saul Siler and Jimmy was quite simply because he knew that you don't just walk up to Saul Siler. He saw what Jimmy was doing and he's like, oh crap. So obviously he was already thinking of intervening and pulling Jimmy away from Saul Siler. But what does the name Andy White have to do with the Beatles? If you're a big enough Beatles fan, you already know. But for those of you listening who don't know, when the Beatles had their first recording session with Ringo Starr on drums on September 4th, 1962, they recorded How Do You Do It and Love Me Do, with the intention of Love Me Do being the first single. Well, George Martin was not satisfied with Ringo's performance, so a week later they went back to the studio to re-record Love Me Do, and uh, while they were at it they recorded P.S. I Love You and an early version of Please Please Me. The drummer for those recordings? A session musician named Andy White. Now, some argue that Scott Wolfman Pell, who filled in after the bass player ran off with the Marines, was the equivalent of Jimmy Nickel, who filled in temporarily on tour for Ringo Starr, who was recovering from a tonsillectomy. I don't think that's a good comparison, though, because it was established earlier in the movie that the bass player had already joined the Marines and would be leaving the band permanently eventually anyway. It just so happened that he left earlier than expected after he hung out with those Marines that he met. I would say that Wolfman was much more analogous to Glenn Campbell, who in 1964 was among the on-demand Hollywood session players known as The Click, The First Call Gang, or The Wrecking Crew, depending on whom you ask. For the brief moment we hear Wolfman talk, his manner of speaking is very similar to how Glenn Campbell talked. Guys, say hello to Wolfman, Mr. Scott Pell. How you doing? Replacement? Yes. He's your new bass player. Can he handle our tune? I think I can handle it, Junior. Also, Glenn Campbell temporarily became the Beach Boys touring, say it with me now, bass player <laughs> after Brian Wilson more or less permanently retired from the road. Now, I really shouldn't give all the attention to that thing you do, but Blast Off Girls has very few parallels to the Beatles, really, except for the Hofner bass, which both the bass player in Charlie and the Big Blast had. I guess you could argue that with the character of Bougie Baker, the movie predicts the Beatles hooking up with Alan Klein, but let's be realistic, that's stretching it. But in an attempt to give Blast Off Girls equal time... There are some observations I've made about that movie that I'd like to talk about right now. For one thing, if you like bad movies, you'll probably like Blast Off Girls. Nobody in it can act except Dan Conway, who actually did go on to have a somewhat steady career as a character actor. Everybody else, though, forget it. Actually, the guys in The Faded Blue were pretty convincing during the TV studio scene. Uh, maybe they should have auditioned for further roles that involved pretending to be drunk. Oh, oh, I forgot to mention. Yeah, speaking of that, in the TV studio, once Bougie and Gordy leave, it becomes very obvious that the big blast, those guys were not drunk at all. They were faking it in an attempt to stick it to Bougie. Now, something that I don't get is when the producer discovered that the band was actually not drunk at all, he laughed it off along with them. What is it with you guys? You weren't drunk. What's this all about? Well, 
That's show business, huh? <laughs> I don't know about you, but first of all, this is the same producer who yelled at Bougie for wasting costly studio production time while they were waiting for the tardy band to show up. I mean, why would this producer suddenly laugh about it? I, I, I don't get it. And in real life, yeah, a producer would not laugh about those kind of hijinks because that's a that'd be pretty angering, really wasting all that time. The sound engineering in the movie leaves much to be desired. Um, again, remember how I talked about when Charlie, the band, approached Bougie and pinned him against the wall? You could hear his jacket rub up against his lavalier microphone. <laughs> also in the movie, it's pretty obvious when there are some bits of dialogue suddenly redubbed right in the middle of the conversation. So if you like that kind of thing, yeah, you'll have a good time with this movie. Also... Blast Off Girls was filmed pretty much entirely in and around Chicago illegally, or at least most likely illegally. First of all, given how Herschel Gordon Lewis cranked out movies left and right for the sole purpose of just getting them out in the drive-ins really quickly and make a quick buck, I really doubt he went through the trouble of getting a filming permit. Also, supposedly Mayor Daly seldom, if ever, allowed filming permits in Chicago ever since he saw an episode of The Untouchables in which a Chicago cop is portrayed accepting a bribe. I mean, how dare anyone imply that there was any corruption in the Chicago Police Department back then? <laughs> I don't believe it's stated anywhere in the movie where it actually takes place, but the scenes that were filmed on location, well, it's obviously Chicago. The place where it's implied that Bougie found the faded blue? It was a real-life music joint called Mother Blues. At least that's where the exterior was shot. The interior was most likely a soundstage. But Mother Blues was located at 1305 North Wells Street in the Old Town neighborhood. If you were to go to 1305 North Wells Street right now, you'd find a big apartment building. I mentioned how the romp in the end has some parts filmed on Michigan Avenue. You can tell because adjacent skyscrapers kind of give it away. And also there are a few shots outside of the Art Institute, which is on Michigan Avenue. And of course, on the north side of the city, Riverview Park, as I mentioned before. There's a semi-famous Among B-Movie fans scene in which Gordy tries to make some money for himself, but he doesn't have quite the manipulative skills that Bougie does. He and the Big Blast drive up to a Walker Brothers restaurant looking for fried chicken. And who should work at this restaurant and offer fried chicken but Harlan Sanders? Yep, the colonel himself. You serve fried chicken? <laughs> do we serve fried chicken? Well, we, we do serve fried chicken. He makes a deal with Gordy. If the band agrees to perform, they can have all the fried chicken they want for free. So Gordy delivers the good news to the Big Blast, except uh, the way Gordy tells it. Hey, you guys, I just made a deal. Lunch is a buck each if we deliver some music. Good deal, huh? Give me a dollar. Personally, I think Gordy should have aimed a little bit higher, maybe said $5 per person, but oh well. I had to mention this scene because, well, Colonel Sanders plays a fried chicken monger. Because of course he does. And apparently Sanders was not a nice person to deal with. He was very overbearing to the point that he insisted he direct his scene. Whether or not he was actually granted that wish, I don't know. But getting back to the Chicago-ness of the scene, it obviously was not Chicago, but a nearby northern suburb, because Walker Brothers is a famous small chain of pancake houses on the North Shore. However, that Walker Brothers restaurant doesn't exist anymore, and uh, we know that because... On the building itself, there's a big number 8400. None of Walker Brothers' current locations is located at 8400-something street. 
Herschel Gordon Lewis recalled that the scene was filmed in Wilmette, but that 8400 address, uh, assuming it follows the Chicago grid system, which most of the North Shore does, it was either too far south or too far west to have been Wilmette. Assuming that address is on a north-south street, that would place that Walker Brothers location on a corner where Main Street crosses. I'm guessing it was more likely in Skokie. But early in the movie, there's some commentary about how all the groups sound the same, and Bougie used that attitude to his advantage when bribing a club manager into giving the Big Blast a residency. He said, if all the groups sound the same, then what difference does it make if you get my band or any other band? And to be honest, the two bands in the movie, Charlie and The Faded Blue or Big Blast, they do sound very similar. The only real difference is that The Big Blast had a keyboard. Oh, and speaking of which, this is a, another observation I made. Chris Wolski's keyboard is, I guess it's supposed to be an organ or some kind of electric piano. I swear that thing looks like an accordion. It looks like an accordion just propped up on a stand, and I'm guessing that that's exactly what it was because the crew didn't feel like trying to squeeze a full-size keyboard into the shot or on the stage or whatever else have you. But it uh, I don't know. I really doubt that it's an actual electric piano or organ or whatever, which... I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to I'll have to ask around. I'll have to show some people who know more about keyboard instruments than I do. And remember how I mentioned how it appeared that Charlie was not very good at miming to recordings? Well, the same is not true for the Big Blast, the Faded Blue, because either they were miming very well or they were actually performing the music live because it looked like they were synced up very well. But anyway, going back to Chris Wolski and his keyboard, and by the way, Chris is the only one that I can positively identify because I don't think every member of the band uses his name. There's another guy in the band named Tom. At first, I thought he might have been the drummer, but another scene, it's almost implied that he's one of the guitar players, but I really don't know. I, I really don't know. And for what it's worth, Chris and Tom were obviously using their real names. But anyway... It was Chris's outburst with his keyboard that inspired the song the band used to sever its ties with Bougie, Go Yourself, My Friend, I guess I'll call it. I gotta admit, though, I love that song. It's definitely a fun listen, and it sounds a lot like Dirty Water by the Standells. I would absolutely buy Go Yourself, My Friend, if it were on a record. Now, unfortunately, we don't know what happens to the Big Blast after they part ways with Bougie, but we do know what happens with the Wonders after they part ways with Mr. White. Of course, uh, I already said that uh, Jimmy stayed on with Playtone Records, but I'm not going to spoil what happens to everybody else. Uh, if you want to know, watch the movie. It's a wonderful film. All I'll say is that nothing truly bad happens to anybody, at least nothing permanent, and each member of the Wonders has his own success that basically sets himself up for a pretty comfortable life. But whatever did become of the Big Blast, we can be pretty sure that Tom, Dennis, Ron, Chris, and Ralph were much happier once they got Bougie out of their lives. I truly do hope that my theory that Tom Hanks might have seen Blast Off Girls is indeed true. And those of you who've seen That Thing You Do but haven't seen the extended version, I strongly recommend it. It's not necessarily better than the regular version, but it does give you a completely different viewing experience. It gives you a whole different perspective on the characters and the situations. Really enjoyable. 
But anyway, that's it for chapter 38. And uh, I just want to give a shout out to my friend and Pie Factory podcast co-host Jim for suggesting Blast Off Girls to be discussed in music for schnooks. And uh, speaking of my co-host Jim, uh, if you can't get enough of my voice, check out our podcast, Pie Factory Podcast, in which the two of us discuss classic arcade video games. And if you really need more of me, well, I also co-host another podcast called Tune X Podcast. My wife Lisa and I get uh, pretty intense about the Beach Boys. Uh, But anyway, having said all that, you can reach out to me at Schnook Podcast on Twitter. Also look for Autobiography of a Schnook on Facebook or go to facebook.com slash schnook podcast. You would not believe how hard it is to say slash schnook podcast. My email address is autobio at schnookpodcast.com. Sounds and music in this episode, uh, that is the sounds and music that do not actually belong to me, are the property of their respective copyright holders and is meant for commentary and review. Infringement is not intended. Coming up next, well, I do believe that the next thing I will be discussing as part of my autobiography is one of the more interesting jobs that I've had uh, in my life. But until then, everybody, just remember the good goes around. And go yourself, my friends. My amp's ready to blow sky high. I get feedback when I crank it past three.